backs together. After a very busy weekend last week, we were away from our building here, but we were together in uh, body and in spirit, and we shared fellowship with the Grace Partner Churches. But it's good to be back together here, and it's good to see you here, see a couple that uh, uh, aren't usually here with us. Glad to see Gary here coming, coming back home from Arizona, and uh, I'm glad that you could stop in. It's so good to see you. So refreshing. He tells me he keeps up with us. He keeps in touch with us through the internet. He hears every Sunday's message through the internet. And so that's a blessing that uh, God's word can be shared to the people who are near and far away uh, through the technology that we use. Praise God. It's also good to have my brother here. Rodney's here. Again, uh, visiting with family. We had a uh, family funeral over the weekend, and he took that opportunity to come not only to, to meet in the Chicago area where the funeral was, but to stay with us and to join us for service today. So we are so thankful for the opportunity to, to have him here. It's a blessing to have my brother here. Our, uh, one thing I want to mention before our scripture reading, already there have been some questions put in the question box. We're going to be answering those questions this evening. So there are cards uh, in the foyer towards the north end uh, on the west wall, there is a, a mail slot, and there's some cards available. So you can take a card and write your question on it. If you have a question about our catechism uh, uh, that we cover in Sunday school or any other Bible question, uh, please feel free to write that question. If you don't want to put your name on it, that's all right. We'll try to answer those questions during our evening service. These cards are for questions only, all right? So don't get it to write somebody's telephone number down or anything else like that. Use your own paper for that. These are for questions, but we want you to, to use them. Already I have gotten some questions. I'll be answering those uh, this evening, and you can add to that. I'll, I'll pull after service, uh, give you time to put some in there, and uh, we'll try and answer those if I have enough time to, uh, to research the answers for those. All right? All right, our scripture reading this morning has turned in our Bibles to Colossians. We're back in our series in Colossians. We're in the last chapter and heading down the stretch. Colossians chapter 4, today our text and our reading comes from chapter 4, verse 2 through verse 6. So very short reading today. So turn in your Bibles, Colossians 4, chapter, chapter 4, verse 2 through 6. If you don't have your own Bible, our ushers stand ready with Bibles in hand. Raise your hand, they'll bring a Bible to you. Everybody who can read should have access to the Word of God. And you should make a, make a, a, take advantage of that. Even if you don't have your own Bible, ushers have Bibles available. So let's stand together as we listen to the reading of God's Word. Colossians chapter 4. Verse 2 through 6. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. May God direct our hearts in thinking about his word and then believing and living out his word. 
Let's bow for a moment of prayer. After prayer, our choir will come with a special song and then the message of God preached in Colossians 4, 2 through 6. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to pray. We thank you for opportunity to come and to gather here together. And the saints that we gather with, we are privileged, Lord, to have each other in our lives. We have your word. We have your Holy Spirit living in us. We have each other. And all for the purpose of allowing us to live out the truths of your word, to have victory over sin and to bring glory to you in our lives. So we thank you for that. We pray for those who are missing today, some because of, of health. We think of Aaron, uh, who has has not been feeling well, and we just pray for him, Lord. He has a physically taxing job. He has great responsibility in his family, and we just pray that you would just help him so he can fulfill those responsibilities to your glory, to make him well again. We pray for and thank you for those who have been sick and, and are, are well enough to attend today, and uh, we just ask your blessing on each one there. Some are here, Lord, and still have different ailments, but they're here anyway, and I thank you for that. Trusting you, Lord, we pray that through our sicknesses and through our challenges that we would lean on you, we would trust in you, and we give in our living and leaning testimony to others that you are a God who is, is, uh, suffices for every situation and, and every challenge in our life we can trust you in. And, you meet us in those challenges. So we thank you for that. We pray now for the preaching of your word, Lord, that you would allow our hearts to, to focus on your word and allow your word to, to rest upon us, to, um, to um, be heard, and to uh, that seed to be planted within us, that it won't be uh, laid on, on fallow ground or, or, or ground that won't be fruitful, but that you would touch our hearts, move our hearts, open our hearts to receive your word, and then we might be fruitful from your word today. We just pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. So I've entitled today's message, The Further Keys to Group sanctification. Further keys to group sanctification. Colossians is said to be one of the most Christ-focused or Christ-centered books in the Bible. The writer Paul is dealing with some false teaching we're not told exactly what the form of that false teaching is, but we see how he answers it no matter what form it is. The right answer to false teaching is a correct understanding and exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. To see him in his fullness and to appreciate him, who he is and what he has done. And so all through Colossians, he, he weaves that theme that we are who we are because of Christ. So we need to know who Christ is, what he has done, and then our lives begin to focus on him. When our lives are focusing on Christ as they should be, then we have victory in our lives 
and God is glorified. Look with me at chapter 3, verse 2. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things on the earth. Then he gives us a reason. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. I like that, that phrase, your life is hidden in Christ. So he becomes our focus. Notice the next verse. When Christ, who is your life, appears... I like how he slips that in there. Christ is to be your complete life, your whole reason for living, your goal. Everything that you have, everything that you are is based on Christ. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him. So I see several things in that verse that we've talked about that are emphasized here is that he, he, he does make a, a, a huge emphasis on our growth in Christ. And we use the big word, right, sanctification, to show how we are becoming more and more like Christ. In other words, it's important that when we come to believe in Christ, we call that part our salvation, when we come to believe in Christ, we also must grow in Christ and so he mentions that aspect of salvation. Our salvation is based on Christ. Our sanctification or our growth is totally based on Christ. And then that last part is our glorification is totally focused on Christ. He says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, what happens after this life he talks about? That's the glorification stage of our salvation. Then you also will appear with him in glory. So we look forward to that. And so because we are saved, we are to live a sanctified life. We can live a sanctified life because we've been saved. We have a new heart, a new being, and we have the motivation of looking forward to life with Christ that we'll enjoy forever. And so um, that's, those are keys to our walk with the Lord. And he goes through several things in this chapter. When we get to chapter 4, he adds a few things there, too, that are key to our sanctification, our growth, and our walk with the Lord. Another theme that is central to this thinking is what I call body language. Body language. I'm not talking about, you know, if I have my hands on my hip and if uh, there's a smirk on my face, you know what that means. I don't believe you, and I'm about to say something to you. I'm not talking about that body language. I'm talking about the language of the body of Christ. I'm talking about the terms in his word that refer to how we function together as a unit, as a body. You, you, when you read that, you need to catch those terms because they're important. They're important to, to each aspect of our salvation. Salvation, sanctification, and glorification all have to do with us as a body. And so we want to see how that theme is played through. Let's, let's take a look at, at this. First of all, we function as a unit, as a group, or as a body. God did not intend us to live on little islands and glorify him alone by ourselves. He intended for us to function as a group of believers connected together and finding a vital life together with each other. Okay? Let's see how, how, how that plays out. 
Christ wants you to be connected. Look, look, look at how we're connected, verse, chapter 3, verse 1. First of all, we're connected to Christ himself. If then you have been raised with Christ, he, 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 he sets all those things that follow with the fact that we are connected to Christ in his resurrection. And that's essential. That means that because he lives, we will live. Because he conquered death, we will conquer death. Because he died for our sins and overcame the greatest enemies, sin and death, we have the victory over sin and death as well. Because we're connected with him. So that connection with Christ is essential. All the way through verse 1 and 4, I already read uh, verse 2. Two, verse 3 and verse 4. He also wants us to know that we are not only connected to Christ, but we are connected to each other. Go back to chapter 2, verse 19. Look at this phrase. He, he uses it in the negative that, that uh, those who are challenging believers and have wrong thinking and wrong living. He says they're not holding fast to the head. That head is capitalized. It means Christ. They're not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, body language again, nourished and knit together, word together, nourished and knit. Our nourishment and our knitting comes uh, from the, uh, show the fact that we are connected with each other, right? Nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. So he talks about this body, the, the, the group of believers function together and they grow as God uh, 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 allows them. The growth comes from God. But notice the, the, how the connectedness is, is spoken of there. It talks about joints and ligaments, Right? So they're not isolated. They're all tied together. Uh, we talk about a head and a body. Verse 19, Jesus is the head. We are the whole body. We are nourished and knit. Nourished means that we, we get the nutrients that we need, and they flow to us as the body functions properly, right? And we're knit together. We're tied together. We're joined together. So he uses that language there to show how we ought to be functioning properly. Going on to the next chapter, chapter 3, verse 8 and 9, he says this. Um, but now you must put them all away. He's talking about those things that we need to put off. But notice the things that we put off. Why, why does he bring these particular things up? I believe he brings them up because of their relationship to body function. They, they, they affect, they are, in, in this case, they're very detrimental to us having a healthy body of Christ. And that's why we put them off. Look, look what they are. Put them away. Anger, verse 8. Wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Verse 9, do not lie to one another. Kind of gives a clue when he uses that term, one another. All these things are offenses against each other that, that greatly impact and hinder the proper functioning of the body. Okay? So he's saying it's not just for individual sanctification, but it is for us functioning together that we ought to live lives that, lives that are committed to Christ. So he says put these kind of things away because they have a very foul effect on body functioning. Also, 
he says in verse 12 through 14, he goes on the other side. Add these things, put on these things, because they are essential for the body functioning as it should. Verse 12, put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Notice he, he says as God's chosen ones. He's not saying you individually, but you collectively, each one of you. Each one of you. You are a group. We are a group. We are a unit. We are a family. We are, in fact, a body. Now, that, that refers to the entire body of Christ, not just sweet communion, but all of those who are trusting in Christ function together. And what does he want us to, to, to keep in mind or to add so that we function properly? He says, compassionate hearts, verse 12, kindness, humility, Meekness and patience. Now, I made a point when we went through that passage to say, if you live on an island all by yourself, you don't need any of those things. But because we function together, they are essential. You can't function without them. So people say, you know, the reason why I ain't going to have a lot of kids is because I don't want all that drama, right? The reason why I ain't going to get married because I don't want to get divorced. I don't want all the issues of relationships. And so, in other words, I'm going to isolate myself so I won't have to deal with people. And I won't have problems. And we do that in the Christian walk sometimes. I don't go to church. Too many hypocrites there. Well, you just, you just being a hypocrite right there and saying that. We need to function together. And God expects us to function together. He says, you absolutely need these things then to function together. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forbearance, verse 13, bearing with one another. Forgiveness and love, verse 14. Notice at the end of verse 14, another body language word, perfect harmony. See, if you're a solo job, you don't have to worry about harmony. If you sing solo, you don't have to worry about harmonizing with anybody else. In fact, you go off key, yeah, people will know it, but you, you're not going to conflict with anybody else because you're singing by yourself. No harmony is not really required. But he talks about that again in verse 15, the, the very uh, near the end of that, to which indeed you were called in what? One body, unity and body. Again, body language he speaks of there. And so you ask, I ask the question, why is body language then so important to the theme of our walk in Christ or our sanctification? And we've been pointing it out. That's, that's quite a common theme in Colossians, that, that it is essential. God has called us to come together. Look at verse 16. He says, admonishing what? One another. One another. We function together as a unit. So when you come into sweet communion today, I hope you don't think, you know, when I get out of here, I'm just going to do my own thing, and yeah, I'm going to praise God by myself, and then I'm going to go home and do my own thing. We function together, and God intends for us to do that. God did not intend for you to tech, use technology to bypass the function of the body. So people get on the Internet today, and they say, you know, I can pull up any kind of YouTube video and, and, and get people praising and, and worshiping, and I can enjoy that, and I can have church at home. No, you can't. All you did is play the video and felt good about it. You didn't function as a church. You didn't interact with believers as God wants you to. So 
he, he, he wants you in a seat, amen, here. And not just in a seat to hear, hear me, but he wants you out of that seat to interact with other people, with God's people. And so that's essential to our growth, to our individual growth and to our collective growth. Now he goes on and makes it more personal. He talks about our relationships in 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 the end of end of chapter three: wives and husbands, uh, parents and children, workers and bosses. And he says, you know, our, our relationships they demand and they give opportunity for spirit-filled living. In other words, this this is 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 how we function together in these relationships. This is this is how we ought to do. And so this. There's this theme, just summarizing, there's this theme within the theme of sanctification is the body. It's important to sanctification. In other words, you can't be what God intends you to be by yourself. I can't be what God intends for me to be by myself. I'm going to get that from you. Now, I have a question. Why don't you think about this? If we have the complete word of God, which we have, it's inerrant, no problems with it. And we have the Holy Spirit, which every believer has, not just I have it, but you have it. If we have the complete Word of God and we have the Holy Spirit, why do we need each other? Or do we need each other? Why do we need each other? Think about that. God gave us His Word, God gave us the Holy Spirit. Why do we need each other? In fact, some people would use that as an argument that they don't need each other. I got the word. I don't need you telling me. I got the Holy Spirit. He teaches me. I don't need you teaching me. But if we begin to draw that out, we realize that's totally contrary to what all New Testament tells us about how we ought to be functioning. So something's wrong with that mindset of because I have the word and because I have the Holy Spirit, I don't need you. People even that, butt out my life, you know, get out. Don't tell me. I know already. I got the word. I got the Holy Spirit. I don't need you telling me this. It's obvious and it's clear from this section and all through God's word that we do need each other. In fact, the answer to that question is because God determined it to be so. God put us functioning in a unit, in a social group together. He intended for us to take his word, to use his Holy Spirit, but to remind each other and to function together. And so he talks about you have to admonish and teach one another using psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. He says use the word and the Holy Spirit among you to, to, to live that body life. And it is that body life that he intends to grow us with his word and with his Holy Spirit. God intends that to be a proper functioning of ourselves together. Now, chapter 4. Further keys to growth or to sanctification. The first one is very clear in verse 2 when he says, continue steadfastly in prayer. So prayer in some way is very important to our functioning together and our growth together. Prayer is essential to that. 
He says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. There's three key words that he, he gives here that tell us something about how we ought to function in prayer. And they are steadfast, watchful, and thanksgiving. Steadfast is very clear. These words aren't very hard to understand. He says that steadfast, that, that we ought to be consistent and regular in our prayer time. Now, I'm convicted right there. I don't know about you. I need to be consistent in my prayer time. He wants us to be steadfast, continuing is that first word, continuing. Keep on keeping on and keep on, keep on, keeping on, right? <laughs> keep on doing it. Be steadfast in our prayer. I am so thankful. There's so many believers in this group of believers who, who constantly are on their knees and in prayer. And I know I could not function without that. They're an important part of God's will going on in this ministry and in my life. So Paul reminds believers, don't neglect that. Continue steadfast in prayer. So he says steadfast. You know, Paul was a good example himself. If we look at chapter 1, verse 3, he says, We always thank God the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. He wasn't just talking. He lived this. By the way, Paul, you know where Paul was when he was writing this? He wasn't in a nice office, you know, uh, with, with all, uh, all the uh, amenities of, of, you know, we have our printer, we have our computer, our internet access, we have our library and our books and, and all, all the things that we need to, to, to do. He was in prison. He was in jail. And while most people, while most people would find a reason to complain in jail, because he was in jail not because he had done anything wrong, and everybody in jail think they didn't do nothing wrong. <laughs> Paul knew he didn't do anything wrong, and he was there because of the gospel ministry that God had put in his life, that he labored with. And he says, while I'm there, you know what I do? I constantly pray. And in this case, he said, I'm praying for those who have heard the gospel and who are walking in it. We constantly saying, we, we, we always thank God, the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. So he prayed for them. Look at verse 9 of Colossians 1 again. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Paul was consistent. I'm led to believe Paul didn't even meet these people face to face. He knew of them because of one man that he had witnessed to and given the gospel. And this man, Epaphras, probably was saved and went back to his hometown. And, and he was just a light turned on for the Lord and, and began to witness. And, and, and other people came to Christ as a result of that. And Paul wanted to minister to them. He was an apostle. He, he wanted the gospel to, to be expanding, to reaching out. And so he loved these people, even though he had probably never seen them. But he prayed for them. And he was close to them because he prayed. So he was steadfast in his prayer. Another thing we're reminded here is that prayer is to be watchful. We're on guard. We're on alert. 
That's why it's good to hear when somebody is praying for you that they are thinking about you and they're watchful. They are guarding you in essence. Look what Jesus says in, in, in Mark. Mark chapter 14. I'll have you turn there. Mark 14, verse 33. It's a very insightful passage. Mark 14, verse 33. Are you turning there with me? All right. Are you awoke? Some of you are. Amen. I'll preach by myself. Mark 14, 33. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Now, you, you remember, this is the passage of Gethsemane. This is the night before the crucifixion. And he goes to pray. But how did he feel? He didn't feel too good. He said he was greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, verse 34, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Now, I can't imagine what that feels like. My soul is sorrowful. He didn't say my stomach hurts, I got a headache. He said my soul is sorrowful even unto death. He knew what he was about to, to do, and he was very, very distressed and troubled. It says greatly distressed and troubled. He says, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. He kind of asked the question, what do you mean by watch? Did he mean that these three men were to stand on guard and if they see any, anybody coming as a threat to, you know, to, to head them off? No. Well, he tells us what he means. Verse 35, going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. So he went and prayed, and he came back to this group, and he found them asleep. What did he say? He said to Peter, Simon, he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He says, I wanted you to watch and pray. He says, you know, I'm going through this very stressful and difficult time. It is a comfort to me that, to know that those who care about me Care about me with prayer. You know, I don't come to you because I, I think you have a mastery of, uh, of medical technology and you can somehow heal me. I come to you because you're connected to God and he has the ability to heal me and you have the ability to pray for me. You know, sometimes we're going through so much stress that we can't even pray for ourselves. We're not in a frame of mind to do that. It's good to know we have intercessors, other believers who are praying for us. The greatest thing that we can do is to pray and to be constant in prayer for one another. And Jesus was distressed because his disciples fell asleep on the job. He says, I can't think of a more stressful time than the holy sinless one about to go to the cross and the ones who are closest to him the three men that are closest to him can't pray for an hour 
Don't we do the same thing? I can't come to prayer service. Prayer service is boring. Really? Really? When we look at, we, we are supporting in our prayers those who are on the line in God's work. We need to uphold them. Jesus was begging, dude, can you pray without falling asleep? Isn't this important? Isn't this significant? Can't you be in watch for prayer for just an hour? He, you, know, I could, I, you know, I could go off on that. Jesus didn't, but like tomorrow I'm going to be on a cross. And you can't pray? Really? So he expected them to pray as a guard, as a watch, to be mindful of the need to pray, to take that need to God the Father. Ephesians 6, verse 18 through 20. You know, Ephesians is another epistle, a letter that Paul wrote while he was in jail. He wrote a letter to the church in Ephesus and to the word church in Colossae. And so they mirror each other in, in, very, in various ways. We can learn from each as we study the other. So in Galatians 6, excuse me, Ephesians 6, verse 18, it says this, Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to that end keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Kind of just kind of mirrors everything we talked about, those three main words, steadfastness, watchfulness, and then he gets into thanksgiving as well. He says in verse 19, and as for me, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. And so he's saying pray. Pray for the workers of the gospel. Pray for God's people as they take the gospel out. That's not just me. Certainly I, I would ask you to pray for me. And one of the things I, I want you to do, you know, as you hear God's word, you're wondering, what does God want me to take away today from this message? That's one of the things you can take away, simply, is to be on your knees this week and to think of God's people that you know in this fellowship and pray for them. He even tells us how we can pray. Um, in, in, in Colossians back, chapter 4, let's go back to that. Um, Verse 3, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. He's saying this is how you can pray. Pray for the workers of the gospel that, and pray this for them, that God opens doors. In other words, what he's saying is pray for the impact, the fruit, and the success of the gospel. Now, right there, um, it kind of reveals our prayers oftentimes have very little to do with the gospel. So if the gospel is God's main focus, then our prayers aren't really lining up with God's focus, is it? But he says pray, pray for us, and this is how you pray. You notice Paul didn't say pray that I just get out of jail. 
pray that they treat me nice in jail. I'm sure all of those things were on his mind in some kind of way. They're not evil things to pray for. But what he asked to be focused in prayer is that God opens the door for the effectiveness of the gospel. So he wanted their prayers to be focused on that. In this, we learn a great lesson. Although the human side of ministry has many essential elements, including faithfulness, availability, perseverance, and even skill, there are many sides uh, 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 on the human side of, of, of ministry, there are many essential elements, and I mentioned those. Still, the key to effectiveness in the gospel is the work that God alone does. He opens doors. And God is in the habit of doing his work in response to our prayers. He likes to do things that way. He's going to do his job, but he likes to do them in response to our faithful praying. So this teaches us a few things. There are some things that we certainly have as our responsibility on the human side, but we need to keep in mind the effectiveness of the gospel. What's the biggest key to that is the part that God alone does. He opens the doors. That thinking will keep us grounded. It, it shouldn't surprise us that we get that kind of thought in this book of Colossians. See, Christ, in the Christ-centered epistle that Colossians is, it's no surprise that the gospel then is God-centered, Holy Spirit-centered, and Jesus Christ-centered. God calls, Jesus pays the price, and the Holy Spirit brings to life. So the essentials of the gospel really are God-centered. Now, why is that critical? Why is that important for us to keep that in mind? First of all, it's encouraging. It keeps me from depression. I wake up on Monday morning and I say, God, is that all the folks we had in our church? That's it? And I begin to think that, hey, I'm somehow is the central clog in the wheel. And that because I didn't preach to 200 people and, and see 300 people respond in some great way and, 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 and see this great response that somehow I have failed. But now I could wake up on Monday morning and say, God uses his word. God opens doors. God can use technology. Amen. This word can be going out to Arizona, right? God can go. This word can be going out several places I'm not even aware of. Heard reports of, uh, of, of Europe, South Africa, uh, different places that have heard the word coming from here, let alone from all the other sources that God is using to take his word to. And I'm encouraged because it is not based on me and my limitations. It is based on God who is unlimited and he will accomplish his purpose. 
says his word will not come back void. It will accomplish what he sends for it to do. So that's encouraging to me. And so a God-centered focus keeps me from depression. Woe is me, God. What have we done? We have failed. Oh, here we go again. What's the use? But I began to realize God is accomplishing exactly what he intends to accomplish. I began to see God is doing something in this work. God is ministering to his people. He's working in hearts. Whether I see all of the fruit of it or not, God is accomplishing. He cannot fail. He saved me. I've never been a part of a big church, a huge, humongous ministry. But God has had a powerful impact in my life. And through my life, I've seen that just reverberate throughout my whole family. Praise God. So it keeps me from depression. Another thing that's essential in this God-focused view of ministry and gospel, it is glorifying to God. God says in 1 Corinthians, I'm going to do things in such a way that no man gets the glory. He says, I like to do things that way. So he says, it's, it's not many mighty, not many noble that are called, but I do the calling in my little insignificant way so that man doesn't get glory from himself or steal glory from me. It's glorifying to God. He does it the way he wants to do it. It's also humbling to have that point of view. We, we can oftentimes have a bloated vision or view of ourselves or our importance. And it's humbling to know that I can't save a single individual. I cannot save them. It's humbling. But all those things together just keeps us in the right mindset. Also see, though, a great human responsibility in verse 4. He says, this is how you ought to pray, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Pray for me, he's saying. Pray for us that God open a door, right? Verse 3, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Here's the human side of that. I have a responsibility, Paul says, to, to, to walk through the door that God opens and to speak the truth that God has declared and to speak it in such a way that it effectively communicates with human beings, that I may make it clear. I grew up witnessing so many who thought they were so skilled and so talented in giving the word that they spoke the word in such ways that it brought glory to themselves. They wanted you to know how wise they were. They wanted you to know how great a voice they had, how persuasive they were, and, and all those things came through. And so uh, then we had people who just mirrored all the people they thought were successful. I think Martin Luther King was a great speaker, so I want to sound like him. I want to put my words together like him. I, I want to have people listen to me and be, uh, to, to, as they listen to him, basically he's saying, I want people to worship me. And so the focus becomes on self. 
But Paul doesn't do that. He says, I recognize that God does the work, but I also recognize I have a responsibility, and that is to clearly communicate God's word. Not in a way that gets in the way of people understanding God's word. The old timer, you say, make it plain, preacher. Make it plain. Don't introduce terms, whether it's theology or not, that confuse or you have to further explain just to show how smart you are for introducing it. That didn't benefit or help the hearer. Paul says, pray for me that I make the gospel clear. Then he says this, which is how I ought to speak. Amen to that. He reminds us the purpose of preaching is to communicate God's truth, not to obscure it, not to make people say, I wonder what he meant, what he said. Huh? Now, it's true that sometimes we provoke great thought. Jesus did that in provoking thought. He knew that some of the people he talked to, they were just blind, and they weren't going to get the truth, and he spoke a word that condemned them, and they totally could not understand what he said because they, in a prideful way, thought they had it already. He just let them know, you know, you don't have it. You don't have the basics of God's word. And so part of that truth or communicating that was to make that clear to them, and he did a good job at that. But Paul says, it's my job to make clear the word of God and pray for me in that regard. So let me go on to end up in verse 5 and verse 6. So one essential element to our, 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 our walk or our sanctification is prayer. Another essential element of that is in verse 5, walk. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders. And I would say it is our testimony our testimony amongst unbelievers. Our testimony among unbelievers. He says this, walk in wisdom towards outsiders. The word outsiders means those who are outside of the family of God, those who are unbelievers, those who don't know and trust Christ as their Lord and Savior. How are we to act towards them? Notice in chapter 3, he talked about wives and husbands and children and parents and, and workers and employers and so forth and how we ought to interact in the body of Christ. Now he talks about how we ought to interact with people who are not a part of the body of Christ and he emphasizes this, walk in wisdom. Be wise in, in, and basically what he's saying is have a good testimony. Have a good testimony amongst those who are outside of the faith. Walk in wisdom, he says. Then he says this, making the best use of the time. Now, I think it, it, it means certainly what it says, making use of your time, using or spending your time wisely. I remember in, in, in elementary school, I used to get good grades, but the, the, the report card was uh, divided into two sides. One was the scholastic or the grade part of, 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 of what you did. Did you learn science? Were you good in spelling? Did you math and so forth? The other one was conduct, how you acted in class, you know. So I always got good grades in, on the grade part, but then in comments, they would say these different things. Be like, oh, why she had to write that? And one thing is that doesn't use time wisely. I used to always get mad at my teachers. I said, look, I did my homework fast. I got it done so I could fool around in class. 
that was my purpose. <laughs> and she would say, no, you could have spent more time doing other stuff. I got it all done. Look at all everybody else. They just still working on it. I ain't got no problem. So I can go and fool around. That's what I did. And, and in my report card, I would get that, does not use time wisely. My mom and dad would get this. What does that mean, Brian? I don't know. Look, I got a B plus. What's she complaining about, right? <laughs> they knew I could do better. They were holding me an account for what I was able to do. So yes, we need to use our time properly, but there's an even further uh, 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 spiritual truth that we need to understand. He's saying here, making best use of the time. Not just my time, but the time. In other words, the time is recognizing eternity, acting with eternity in mind, knowing that we live in a time which is limited and Christ is soon to return and judgment is coming. And so just because I got my work done, I can fool around now. I'm saved. I'm okay. What about the time? Ephesians speaks of it this way, Ephesians 5, 16. Turn here for a second. He says in Ephesians 5, 16, making the best use of the time, and he explains, because the days are evil. Making best use of the time. So walk in a way in your testimony, recognizing that, one, you have limited time to spend with people. You don't know if this interaction may be your last or their last. So many times we we so uh, involved with just having fun and just doing our own thing. We forgot God places here for a reason. He put you on that job with a purpose in mind. So when I, when I was working as an engineer, you say, ask daily, God, are you going to put me in contact with somebody that you want me to impact in some way or perhaps somebody that you want to impact me in some way? Help me to be mindful and, 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 and looking for how best you want me to use this time to be a witness, to be a testimony. And you realize that those things come fast. and You, you know, you and I are not always ready for that. That just one moment, you know, because you don't get like a Sunday school class where you get 45 minutes to sit down and explain and break down all the truth to somebody. Sometimes it's just at the break room and it's just one slip comment that they make. And, and you make one comment in response and afterwards you spend the whole day thinking, wow, I could have said something different to that person. But that's good because you're looking at how you can best use the time. And so we can function together and, and help each other, sharpen each other how to use this time. And so those, those moments are going to come. We may take advantage of some, we may slip in others, but we need to be constantly thinking, God, how do you want me to use this time as I deal with other people? We, we remarked that in, 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 in our growth, God didn't put us on islands to be all alone. He placed us with people. And sometimes, if you're like me, I'm, I'm uncomfortable being around people who, who don't love God, who don't live that way. But God put me there for a reason. And so I need to be thinking, I need to be tenant, depending on him and trusting him. God, how can I be effective? Now, it's not always giving a verse, quoting scripture necessarily, 
But it is asking God, depending on God, trusting him, how can I be effective as a witness and a testimony in this time for this person? So he wants us to make best use of the time. Then he says this about our speech. Let your speech always be gracious. One of the important things in our testimony, in fact, is our speech. Usually the first thing that people who interact with us get besides our physical appearance is what we have to say and how we say it. So you're going to interact with people tomorrow, and some of those interactions are going to be unpleasant. Did you know that? They're going to be unpleasant. Probably going home on the way from church, somebody's going to cut in front of you in a car, somebody's going to do something, and you're going to have an unpleasant interaction. What's your speech? He says this about our speech. Let it always be gracious. Let it always be gracious. Let it always be gracious. Now, some people mistake that for nice. For nice. The gospel communicates that man is condemned in his sin. Graciousness is bringing a condemned sinner to see his sin and pointing them to the only solution to that sin. That's graciousness. So it's not always just being nice and being liked, but acting not with people to like you, but to point them to Christ. That's the picture of grace. So let it be gracious, always. What does God want me to say to impact as a testimony, impact eternity with this person? Not just so that they can think nice thoughts about me and think I'm a nice person, but to be effective in their lives. Is the doctor gracious when he sits down with you and says, listen, I have to tell you something. You have a condition. And you need to know that. And the response of that person, they cringe and they may, may even cry and be tearful and make them sad and sorrowful. But is that the correct thing to communicate them? Yes. They can't deal with an issue until they know about it. Now, how you say that, yes, takes a great, great deal of skill. But don't confuse niceness with graciousness. Then it says seasoned with salt. <laughs> I told Megan today, I was glad to see her here today, even though her husband is sick and not well enough to be with us. She said, y'all needed a Tatum Massey here today. And I said, we sure did. We need some salt on our fries. We need some salt on our fries. We, we, you know, I don't want to eat no fries without no salt. I don't want it too much salt. But I need a little bit. Season with salt. That's what salt does, right? It puts the right amount, just the right amount. If you're a good cook, you know how much to put on and just the right amount. Our words are that way. Seasoned with salt, I, I think of, of, of two words, effective. Salt has a flavor. You don't like eating, most of us don't like eating things that are bland. Our words ought to be 
interesting. Provoking interest, right? Not just bland, right? How you doing? You don't want to talk to nobody like that. <laughs> Let your words be seasoned with salt. Let it be lively and come from life. Let it be interesting. The other words I think about is tasteful. We think of salt in the taste that it does to our tongue. I'm thinking of words and the taste and the tact and the care that we have in giving them. They'll be seasoned with salt so that you might know how you ought to answer each person. In other words, he's saying let's be serious as we interact with those who are outside of the faith. Let's not just be flippant about it. But let's recognize opportunities that God gives us in that way. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for those things that are key to our, our walk, our walk together. As we interact with each other, we pray for each other. We're praying for the effectiveness of your word and our testimony to those who don't know Christ, that we'll be careful, that we'll consider how you want us to use our time and be effective in speaking to others. We need to gain skill in this. We need to practice. We need to rely on you. Lord, we do this because our sanctification or our growth is based, first of all, on the Lord Jesus Christ, who he is and what he's done. We're so thankful to him for being the center of all that you do. May he be the center of our lives, and may we show that and live that out in everything that we do, bring glory to you. Lord, if there's one here that doesn't know Christ as the center, he is the center, they just miss out. But I pray, Lord, you'd open their eyes and let them see that he's the one that brings life. He's the one that brings forgiveness. He's the one that brings us in right relationship with you, Father. He's the only one. May you cause that person to consider, to be convicted, to understand who Christ is through your word and to come and trust in him, put their trust in him. This we pray now in Jesus' name.